We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley with Bob Brandon, and we are doing a book review of Rodney Stark's the right nope got the wrong book there that um what is it called oh how, how the, the west, west won how the west won <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, I have uh, a last friend week we talked about um the not so dark ages and today we're going to talk about northern lights over Christian Christendom which is chapter five but before we do that how are you doing today Bob I'm fine yourself well I'm a vagabond this week, mother-in-law's in the hospital, so I'm down in San Antonio, had surgery this morning, and so. Yeah, you're at that tough age. Yes. That's hard, that feel for you. So you're you're making that drive, you and Lori are making that drive back and forth between Dallas and San Antonio. Yes, and uh, sometimes it's six and a half hours, and sometimes it's four and a half hours, depending on traffic. <laughs> well, you're straight on 35, kind kind of, you know, for the 99% of that trip. And you've informed me, boy, it used to be murder to get through Waco, that section of 35. They, were, I mean, from time immemorial, they've been working on that. But you tell me now, that's clear. Yeah, it's uh, pretty much done. So I'm going to tell my daughter that she'll, she'll be impressed. Well, are we going to start with Daniel? We're going to start with a couple things. One, a reminder from our last podcast on the quote, not so dark ages, how, how much just that comment reflects on what we call the social imaginary. Maybe that's why I said rise and triumph at the beginning there. That book <laughs> Truman's book, right? right? So, but think again, it, I run across this daily in my own life. You know, I'm always trying to learn new things about any subject. And it's just indication of how few synapses I actually have up there, but also <laughs> how many things you just assume to be the case that are not the case, especially when you can prove them in history. You know, right. you've, you've had one perspective for maybe your whole life and then you realize that was wrong. So I like to point those things out when we have them. Second thing, uh, you know, there's, you're not really a football guy, but you were, you know, monitoring 
your mother-in-law's health. So you glance over at the TV and I'm sure you saw what happened last night. Yeah, DeMar Hamlin. Yeah, at Art Attack. Right in the middle of the game. Actually, nine minutes into the game. Yeah. yeah. So they have to rush him off the field, rush him to the hospital. His heart stopped. You know, in, in one sense, kind of fortunate because you have fantastic medical care there within 15 seconds. Right. Yeah, his, yeah they got his heart going again, but he's not doing well. Right. Last I heard, critical care, but his, his vital signs are stable, but he's in critical condition. And it just made me think, so one case, you know, one instance of that, that, that could happen naturally. But it it just reminded me, I forget the percentage of players in the NFL that are vaccinated, but it's, it's almost all of them. It, it's got to be 99% of them, I would think. They really came down pretty hard on those who didn't do that. And right. so the, and, and I'm not saying that's what caused this heart attack. We, we don't know that, but it just reminded me of that. And then on top of that, you know, I get information like you do from Peter Halligan's blog. And so he updates us weekly on how many deaths are recorded in VAERS. So V-A-E-R-S, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System that the CDC uses to keep track of vaccine adverse events. Well, of course, one of the adverse events is death. So do you remember the number from last week? Not the total over like a three-year period. Just, no, last, no, just last week. Do you remember the number? I don't. 2,500 died of the vaccine, according to the CDC, last week. However, there are some things you need to know about those numbers, right? Like, if, if I got vaccinated tomorrow and then died on Thursday, my wife's not calling the CDC and reporting that. Right. She's just dealing with the trauma of what what happened. So, in other words, the situation I'm raising is that very few of those event, events actually get reported. So when VAERS says there was 2,500 reported, how many actual deaths were there? Right. And who knows? They, I would assume that number, you can times that number by 100. I'm not just picking that out of thin air because originally when, when VAERS had their material up a few years ago, they had a companion article from uh, Harvard, which I don't know if that makes, <laughs> makes their data better or worse, but the Harvard article said uh, about one in 100 cases actually get reported to VAERS. So I'm not picking that number out of thin air. Now, if that's the case, that's 25,000 people died last week of the vaccine. Even yeah. if it's even if that's not the case, even if it's just 2,500, that that alone is a staggering number. Can you imagine of any vaccine in history having numbers like that and why they wouldn't pull that vaccine? 
And yet I still see commercials for it all the time. I hear it every time I go to Kroger. Yeah, they announce it, right? You're walking up and down the aisle. Hey, by the way, step over here and get your vaccine. Yeah. So anyway, just wanted to keep that in our listeners, you know, in front of their face, um, because you're not going to hear that anywhere else. But those numbers are real. Okay, on to our task at hand, Hampton. Enough sobering stuff. Let's read a great chapter from perhaps... Do you have a favorite book in the Bible? No, I don't think so. I do. And I, Daniel, I, know. <laughs> I think it is. For me, I do think it's it's Daniel. What a fantastic character. And I, you know, I was saying, you know how I do most of my reading in the bathtub, Hampton. Mm-hmm. Don't don't just imagine a bunch of bubbles in there. Don't go any further with the visual. <laughs> but so so here I am, you know, all bubbled up and got a book. And uh, it's usually about three in the morning. That's what I've been waking up at two the last couple months. So I figured might as well knock some reading out. And I was thinking, remember how we were talking through the uh, founding fathers of the United States? Mm-hmm. And we ultimately decided John Calvin was the founding father of the United States. Wouldn't it be a fun to think of the human biblical authors in terms of founding fathers. Yeah. And then Daniel in that list. I would. And then and then we discuss, well, imagine if you were in a tavern. And so exclude, I'm not talking about getting drunk. I'm just saying in a in a place that had that sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. And and you could talk to the human authors of the Bible. Who would who would you grab first to get a table alone or, or their ear? You know, who, who would you want to talk to first? I mean, Moses got to be pretty big. He, in the way that we thought John Calvin was the founding father. I mean, Moses first five books of the Bible. Come on. That's gigantic. I would think Ezekiel or Daniel would be, could you, could you explain a little better? Well, it's a fun way to think about it. You know, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just a fun way. But this guy, Daniel, man, I could spend a long time with him. You know, another guy that I'm sorry to push this out one last time, but John would be pretty interesting, too. Right. But okay, so here we are. We're in Daniel chapter five. The historical setting is this. Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, God's nation in 605 BC and took some of the youth captive back to Babylon. His interest was he's setting up a huge empire. He's got to have a lot of administration. So they wanted to (laughs) take the best out of the of what the other countries had to offer. So they grabbed the Judean youth who had no defect, the text says. And Daniel was one of those. And so they bring them to Babylon and they train them in all the learning of the Chaldeans. And then they set them up in an administrative office. Well, as you know, 
Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. No one can interpret it. He's Nebuchadnezzar is going to dismember literally the astrologer guys, the dream interpreters that can't interpret it. The reason they can't interpret it is because he won't tell them the dream. He says, you know, if you guys are real, will you tell me what I dreamed? <laughs> well, they don't like that. They, they like you tell them the dream and then they'll put a spin on it. But so they can't do it. But Daniel can. And so Nebuchadnezzar sets Daniel up as running Babylon. And so <clears throat> eventually then God strikes Nebuchadnezzar down. You know, he built the statue. Daniel's friends wouldn't bow down to it, threw him in the furnace. They didn't get harmed. And then he, God turns him into a cow. I'm just saying that in my language, right? Turns him into some sort of animal for seven years till he agrees it's God on high that actually runs things and not him. <laughs> so then this is the next chapter. Nebuchadnezzar now has left the scene and he had a fairly long reign to maybe 35, 40 years, maybe. So Daniel's up there in years by the time you get to Daniel chapter five, if he was 20, say when he interpreted the dream, you know, so he's like at least 60 now. Mm -hmm. So here we go. Daniel chapter five, King Belshazzar prepared a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles. He was drinking wine in front of them all. While under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar issued an order to bring in the gold and silver vessels, the ones that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had confiscated from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, together with his wives and his concubines, could drink from them. So they brought the gold and silver vessels that had been confiscated from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, together with his wives and concubines, drank from them. And as they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So let's pause there for a second, if that's okay with you. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I just want to make this fairly quick comment. If you ever have a chance to delve into the history and the architecture of the city of Babylon as it existed in Nebuchadnezzar's day, you'll be amazed. I mean, it was the greatest city on earth. It had no rivals at that time. But what you would notice is if you ever see a layout of the streets, every street is named for a deity, right? Yeah. Like, oh, oh, here's May Marduk humble the proud street. Oh, here's Adad protects his warrior street. Here's Ishtar says a prayer for you street. Stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, every street, every one. So when it says here, these guys praised the gods of gold and silver. That was, if you imagine our own distorted social imaginaries, Babylon's was off the charts. The way they viewed the world was so wrong. It, it would stun you. Hmm. Okay. So <clears throat> verse five, 
at that very moment, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the royal palace wall opposite the lampstand. The king was watching the back of the hand that was writing. Then all the color drained from the king's face and he became alarmed. The joints of his hips gave way. His knees began knocking together. The king called out loudly to summon the astrologers, wise men, and diviners. The king proclaimed to the wise men of Babylon that anyone who could read this inscription and disclose its interpretation would be clothed in purple and have a golden collar placed on his neck and be third ruler in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but they were unable to read the writing or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was very terrified. He was visibly shaken, and his nobles were completely dumbfounded. Due to the noise caused by the king and his nobles, the queen mother then entered the banquet room. She said, O king, live forever. Don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him a spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, he proved to have insight, discernment, and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, appointed him chief of the magicians, astrologers, wise men, and diviners. Thus there was found in this man, Daniel, whom the king renamed Belteshazzar, an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and skill to interpret dreams and explain riddles and to solve difficult problems. Now summon Daniel, and he will disclose the interpretation. Can we pause again, Hampton? Mm-hmm. So remember, there was one of the founding fathers when we went through the founding fathers of uh, America that reeked of wisdom. And so we took a little detour for a couple of weeks and we studied the Hebrew words for wisdom and then the, the Hebrew words for folly. And there's about five or six of those words just used in that last passage to describe Daniel, right? So look at, look at verse 12. He had an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and skill to interpret, right? Explain riddles, difficult problems. There's a host of wisdom terms in there. So he didn't have, Daniel didn't have just one aspect of wisdom. He had the whole package. Yeah. So verse 13, so Daniel was brought in before the king. The king said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who's one of the captives of Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard about you, how there's a spirit of the gods in you, and how you have insight, discernment, and extraordinary wisdom. Now the wise men and astrologers who were brought before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they were unable to disclose the interpretation of the message. However, I've heard that you are able to provide interpretations to solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, you'll wear purple, have a golden collar around your neck, and be a third ruler in the kingdom. 
But Daniel replied to the king, keep your gifts, give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the writing for the king and make known its interpretation. As for you, O king, the most high God bestowed on your father, Nebuchadnezzar, a kingdom, greatness, honor, and majesty. Due to the greatness that he bestowed on him, all peoples, nations, and language groups were trembling with fear before him. He killed whom he wished. He spared whom he wished. He exalted whom he wished. And he brought low whom he wished. And when his mind became arrogant and his spirit filled with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and his honor was removed from him. He was driven from human society. His mind was changed to that of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys, was fed grass like oxen. And his body became damp with the dew of the sky till he came to understand that the most high God rules over human kingdoms and he appointed over them whomever he wishes. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, although you knew all this. Instead, you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. You brought before you the vessels from his temple, and you and your nobles, together with your wives and concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that cannot see or hear or comprehend. But you've not glorified the God who has in his control your very breath and all your ways. Therefore, the palm of a hand was sent from him, and this writing was scribed, inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Farson. This is the interpretation of the words. As for Mene, God has numbered your kingdom's days and brought it to an end. As for Tekel, you were weighed on balances and found to be lacking. As for Peres, your kingdom is divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Then, on Belshazzar's orders, Daniel was clothed in purple. Golden collar was placed around his neck. He was proclaimed third ruler in the kingdom. And in that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. So Darius the Mede took control of the kingdom when he was about 62 years old. Daniel chapter 5, any observations, Hampton? Well, it seemed like he would have learned a lesson where his dad didn't pass the lesson on well enough. Seems like then the lesson's pretty clear. Yeah. God rules. You don't. Babylon doesn't. God does. Right. So, okay, champ, take us through how the West won. Okay, let me find my book. Where'd it go? There it is. <clears throat> so um, the first part of this chapter talks about the Vikings, and I kind of would like to just read his introduction. Sure, sure. So it's first page and a half. Western civilization was born on the shores of the Mediterranean, but it came of age along the Atlantic coast and beyond the great rivers 
that Rome's legion, legions had been loath to cross. As we have seen after the fall of Rome, Europe's social and cultural center of gravity shifted north. Even when the Carolingian empire fragmented, the Vikings brought new energy and enthusiasm to continue the West's glorious journey. Remarkably, much of this story has been ignored and some has been falsified. Despite the fact that historians have given many times more attention to the Carolingian Empire than to the Vikings, the latter played a far more significant and lasting role in the rise of the West than did the Carolingians. Charlemagne was never able to conquer Denmark, let alone Sweden or Norway, and even during his lifetime, seagoing Viking raiders had begun to terrorize Europeans living along the Atlantic coast and to plant colonies, eventually doing so in England, Scotland, Cornwall, Wales, Ireland, France, Iceland, Greenland, Newfoundland, and a multitude of coast coastal islands, including the Shetlands, Orkneys, Faroes. Not content with these Atlantic possessions, in 860, Swedish Vikings sailed down the Dnieper River mm -hmm. and captured Kiev. From there, a Viking fleet of 200 longboats continued down the Dnieper into the Black Sea and attacked Constantinople. Although they were unable to breach the city's immense walls, the Vikings pillaged all the suburbs without interference from Byzantine forces, which must have greatly outnumbered the Viking raiders. Eight years later, in 868, the Vikings based in Kiev imposed a ruling dynasty on the whole of Russia that lasted for 700 years. The name Russia derives from Rus, a name applied to Swedish Vikings. Finally, in the 10th century, Vikings were ceded a large province on the west coast of France in return for protection against their raiding countrymen. This province became known as Normandy and its residents as Normans. Latin Northmani means men of the north. The subsequent triumphs of the Normans reveal that the prevailing view of the Vikings as backwards bar barbarians who wore horned helmets and used skulls for drinking vessels is without any basis in fact. That was a surprise because <laughs> yep, that's a dominant. They always portray the. That's right. Viking. That's the image in your mind. If if you say to a guy on the street, you know, picture a Viking, they're gonna picture like a fur coat, right? A, a fur vest and a helmet like that, and it's just yeah. not the case. Well, and you know that January sixth guy was—they always describe him as wearing the Viking helmet. Yeah, you know, there you yeah. in the capital. Yeah. Well, yeah. the Minnesota Vikings, the football team, right? Their emblem is exactly that picture. That's and right. it's a it's a false picture. No. The Viking Raiders may have been brutal. Raider, raiders usually are, but Scandinavia was as civilized as the more southern societies. In 1066, Duke William and his Normans sailed across the channel and easily conquered England. Far to the south, by 1071, Normans had driven out both Muslims and Byzantines and established the Norman Kingdom of Sicily, which included southern Italy. And then in 1096, Normans played the leading role in the First Crusade. Two of the four leaders were Normans. And Richard the Lionheart, who led the Third Crusade, was a Norman. The great grand, he was the great-great-grandson of William the Conqueror. 
I didn't know that. And when the knights of the first crusade arrived in the Holy Land, they so surpassed their Muslim adversaries in armor, weapons, and tactics that although extremely outnumbered, they repeatedly routed Muslim forces. Hence, although surrounded by an enormous Muslim world and being very few in number, Christian knights were able to sustain crusader kingdoms in Palestine, so long as Europeans were willing to pay the substantial costs involved and sent reinforcements when major crises arose. After two centuries, European support dried up and the last knights came home. As the Crusades demonstrated, the real basis for unity among the Europeans was Christianity, which had evolved into a well-organized international bureaucracy. So for that era, it would be more accurate to speak of Christendom rather than of Europe since the latter had little social or cultural meaning at the time. Now for the details. <clears throat> so so that's the overview, correct? Right, that's the overview of the chapter. Yeah. And so then we're going to look into the details of that. So um, yeah. So the next section is the Viking age. Good. And he goes into quite a lot of detail, but you know, the thing that stood out to me was that they're not barbarians. They had similar weapons and armor like the rest of Europe. They had better ships than anyone else at the time. Yeah. And little flat bottom boats that could go in rivers and the long boats that could handle the open seas. And I guess they had navigation capabilities. Yeah. Fairly sophisticated. Everybody else sailed sailed along the the shore, so they didn't get lost. But they could they could head out and look at the stars, I guess. Yeah. And uh, and he goes into a lot of detail about the different conquests of the British Isles and and all that. Right. Um, I didn't realize they had sailed. I didn't know you could sail down rivers to Constantinople through the Baltic Sea. I. I'm fairly ignorant of European geography as well. You know, most my Canadian friend makes fun of us Americans and how bad our knowledge of geography is. <laughs> <laughs> I've got gypsum Colorado down pretty good, but that's about it. <laughs> right. <clears throat> there uh, was one one guy I wanted to point out. Okay. This is nice. So in this section, the raids and settlements you know, how they expanded their influence across Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of that, in the last paragraph, there's a guy, Charles the Simple, King of France. You see it? that name. Well, I don't know, but <laughs> see see it there in, in 9-11, Charles. And I always thought, you know, if I sort of had a title, that's what I would be. Bob, yeah. <laughs> the, except I'd be, I'd add a little T-O-N on the end there. Bob the Simpleton. The Simpleton. <laughs> I think if I was the king, I'd change my name to something nicer, <laughs> more complimentary. <clears throat> so. so tell well, us about the Norman triumphs. Well, they conquered lots of places, mainly yeah. England. Yeah. I have a relative who traced the Keithley family line all the way back to the Norman invasion in 1066. Wow. I don't know how in the world he did that, but <clears throat> so well, you know a lot of Keithley, it... there was a Keithley borough established about that time. Huh. You know, a lot of people are very interested in that sort of thing. Your roots, mm -hmm. right? Right. They have that 
23 and me uh i forget the names of some of the other ones but you can like subscribe to them and they'll in a general sense i guess i've never really looked at their websites but try to pinpoint your genealogy uh as much as they can sort of like you just described you know they trace it back to a certain place in europe or asia or wherever you came from that always interested me not in my own family's genealogy i think we were a bunch of peasants picking apples in germany or something but the the concept that people would be interested in that and i'm always like well why don't you read the bible it's full of genealogies Matthew and Luke start out with genealogies, right? right. Even New, New Testament. Well, Luke a couple chapters in, but I mean, that is a critical subject for God. Yeah, yeah. Well, he did say one thing there that stood out to me, finally in part because Viking traditions limited the power of kings over the nobility. In 1215, the Norman barons imposed the Magna Carta on King John thereby taking the first step toward democratic rule. So that kind of fits with his theme. And so the theme, the theme as I see it is whenever the people are governed in such a way <laughs> to maximize their freedom and industry, you will succeed. Right. Right. <laughs> the next section I wanted to talk about was the crusades yeah, let's cover that. The you know people often bring the Crusades up as an example that Christians do the same things as Muslims and yeah. kill people, and the Crusades are always the prime example. And if I remember correctly, didn't Obama say something like that at a prayer breakfast when he was president? Yeah, and I, uh, I think so. Yeah, um, but I think he start gives a good account of what really happened during the crusades and he actually has another whole book that goes into way more detail but he kind of summarizes things in this book yeah but that's he, another area right where the social imaginary takes over oh the crusades well very few people know what the crusades were really about so let's yeah. show them yeah well the muslims took over jerusalem in 638 and they for 400 years they pretty much allowed Christians to make their pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And then they would, um, you know, sell them stuff. And so it was profitable. And But around 1000 AD, that changed. And the Muslims started robbing and killing the travelers. And he gave an example of four German bishops. This was in 1064 AD. Um, they had a party of several thousand pilgrims and they were ambushed and two-thirds of them were killed. Mm -hmm. And so um, it says, then I'm going to just read this paragraph. Matters Making matters far worse, the Seljuk Turks, militant, recent converts to Islam, captured Jerusalem in 1071. In principle, they allowed Christian pilgrims access to Jerusalem, but they often imposed huge ransoms and condoned local attacks. Soon only very large, well-armed, wealthy groups dared to attempt a pilgrimage, and even so, many died and many more turned back. Pilgrims' dreadful tales of robbery, extortion, torture, rape, and murder once again aroused anger toward Muslims in the Holy Land. It was in this context that in 1095, the Byzantine emperor 
Alexius the first Cominus. Cominus, maybe. Cominus appealed for Western forces to defend Constantinople from the threat of Turkish invaders. And it was in answer to this appeal that the Pope organized the first crusade. Okay, so quick question. Mm -hmm. For 400 years, who were the aggressors there? The Muslims. The Muslims. So <clears throat> even that initial idea, oh, the Crusades, you know, Christians were killing people. No, they were defending what was already part of Christendom against Muslim aggressors. 400 years of that they put up with. And it got really bad around 1000. So for 100 Correct. years, they were Correct. killing everybody that came there. <laughs> Correct. So the Crusades were more of a defensive thing. Yes. Than yes. Anything else. And he goes on to say, there has been a great deal of anti-religious nonsense written about the Crusades. I like the way he writes. <laughs> <laughs> Including charges that the Knights marched east, not because of their religious convictions, but in pursuit of land and loot. The truth is that the Crusaders made enormous financial sacrifices to go. Expenditures they had... Um, expenditures that they had no expectations of making back. For example, in order to finance a company of crusaders, Robert, Duke of Normandy, the son of William the Conqueror, pawned the entire duchy of Normandy to his brother, King William of England for 10,000 marks, an amount that would have paid a year's wages to 2,500 ship's captains. To raise such a sum, the king had to impose a new tax on all of England, which caused many angry protests. Similarly, Godfrey of Bouillon sold his entire county of Verdun to the king of France and mortgaged his county of Bouillon to the bishop of Liège. Moreover, most of the crusaders knew they probably would never return as expressed in many wills and letters they left behind. In fact, very few of them did survive. Yeah, so they're not going <clears throat> for plunder? No. They were defending it at great cost, but out of, you know, reasons of the faith. So, yeah. And I think that in the next chapter, he talks about the banking system that was developing about that time. Mm -hmm. And so you could borrow that kind of money mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, put up for collateral your, your land. I think the church loaned a bunch of money and ended up owning a lot of land after all of that, too. Mm -hmm. So the first crusade was made up of about 90,000 soldiers. 50,000 of them died on the way from disease and in battles that they had to fight just to get to Constantinople. Mm -hmm. I don't he doesn't really explain why there were so many battles on the way. Um, it probably goes into more detail in that in his other book, but um I can't imagine, you know, if you got 90,000 soldiers marching through your land and people are going to complain. I would think so. They so. sure did. When, you know what that reminds me of is Israel coming out of Egypt. Going and when they'd have, right. When they'd have to pass through somebody's land, that was a big deal. Right. So then they marched to Antioch and there were several battles with much larger Muslim armies, but the Crusaders won them all. But uh, only about 15,000 made it to Jerusalem out of the 90,000. Yeah. How about our one guy? <clears throat> I want to read this. D 
detail on this one, Boamon. Remember his like a girl sees him in the crowd and she she writes down her um, observations about him. Oh, it's cool. So this guy was large, so he stood out in a crowd. So his fourteen-year-old girl sees. You know, he's one of the lead, one of the like generals of the Christian forces of the Vikings. And the girl describes him afterwards. He was slender of waist, perfectly proportioned. His skin was very white. His hair was lightish brown and not so long as that of other barbarians. There was a certain charm about him, but it was somewhat dimmed by the alarm his whole person inspired. There was a hard, savage quality in his whole aspect, due, I suppose, to his great stature and his eyes. Even his laugh sounded like a threat to others. His arrogance was everywhere manifest. He was cunning, too. <clears throat> so think of the What were the dates here? A thousand? Roughly, mm-hmm. maybe it's 11. Was that a decent job of writing a paragraph about someone? Yeah. You would, you'd have to be hard pressed to find that today, wouldn't you? And like, that's a 14 year old girl. So, like, an eighth grader today writing that about someone she saw in a crowd, you'd be hard pressed to find that. Yeah. That's good. Go ahead. Um, I'm going to cover the read what he says about the Jerusalem battle. He says, yeah. by now there were fewer than 15,000 crusaders, only about a third of the number of those who had reached Constantinople two years earlier. The Muslims had far greater numbers in their garrison in Jerusalem, which was one of the great fortresses of the medieval word, world, in the words of the esteemed historian Sir Stephen Runciman. Worse yet for the crusaders, an overwhelming Muslim relief force was on its way from Egypt. At this point, a priest had a vision that victory could be gained if the crusaders fasted for three days and marched barefoot around the walls of Jerusalem. So they did, mocked all the way by Muslims who were crowded, who crowded the city's walls to observe these foolish Christians. But two days later, the crusaders gained a foothold on the walls, having built two movable wooden towers from which they fired lethal barrages from crossbows. From there, they poured into Jerusalem and dispatched every one of the Muslim defenders. There was no time to celebrate. The large Egyptian army was coming to retake Jerusalem, even though by now there probably were fewer than 10,000 crusaders. They immediately marched south to meet the enemy, leaving only a token force in Jerusalem. At the town of Ascalon, 50 miles south of Jerusalem, they reached the Egyptian encampment and once again destroyed a far superior force. Very few Muslims escaped. In celebration of this victory, most of the surviving crusaders boarded ships and sailed home. This left only about 600 fighting men to defend the Holy Land. Although the Muslims could have outnumbered the crusaders by several hundred to one, they had suffered such overwhelming defeats that it was a long time before they were willing to do battle again. And so what the crusaders, the crusades most revealed about the West was the superiority of its tactics and military hardware. Unwilling to shift from light cavalry, the Muslims were unable to dent crusader heavy infantry formations. Beyond that, their arrows could not pierce the crusaders' mail armor unless shot from point-blank range. 
whereas the Crusader crossbows were lethal at considerable range. Crossbows were widely used during the First Crusade, but during the Third Crusade, Richard the Lionheart fielded a large number of crossbow teams, a shooter supported by one or two loaders, facilitating a very high rate of fire. And of course, Richard, like most Crusader commanders, held in reserve a contingent of heavy cavalry that was irresistible when properly utilized. The few Muslim victories in the field were due to overwhelming numbers. Their other victories involved sieges. Yeah. Very good. And the, the thing that he talks about next is the war crimes, crusader war crimes. And he says it's pretty popular to criticize the brutality of the crusaders, but he said it's absurd to impose uh, modern notions about proper military conduct. You know, we, we have the Geneva conventions that mm-hmm. we you mm-hmm. know talk about, but medieval armies had different rules. Mm-hmm. And one of the rules, for example, is if we see besiege your city, if you surrender, then the citizens are supposed to be, you know, either imprisoned or allowed to go free and return home. Mm-hmm. But if you make us stay here for a year or however long, and we have to break down the walls, we're going to kill everybody. So it was sort of an incentive to to um, surrender early, and mm-hmm. so. What's not really talked about is that the Christians actually honored that, and the Muslim commanders almost never honored that. Mm-hmm. And Saladin was the most famous and one of the most wicked Muslim leaders, and yet many historians paint you know a picture of him as the originator of chivalry. <laughs> right, right. So it, that's a good example. We're not going to read that all in detail, but. He gives a fair amount of detail about in, I mean, Saladin or Saladin, yeah. who knows, who knows how to say that stuff. But he's he's the famous picture of the Muslim crusader. Right. right. And, oh, he's often stated he was so chivalrous. He he wasn't that at all. You just got to read the details in here to see he was as brutal or worse than anybody out there. So. Right. But it's often stated the opposite. So another example of the social imaginary, and you got to pay attention to who you're reading and their purposes in saying what they're saying. So go ahead. And then his next section I want to talk about was Christendom. Sure. Um, I don't know if there's anything else in that. Well, he had this conclusion. He says, no doubt it was unenlightened of the Crusaders to have been typical medieval warriors, but it seems even more unenlightened to anachronistically impose the Geneva Conventions on the Crusaders. But we should talk about that. Sure. So um, Christendom says, I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs here. Ironically, the immense favoritism the Roman Emperor Constantine showed toward Christianity did it substantial harm. (laughs) <laughs> Even Duffy, in his history of the pap- papacy, pointed out that Constantine elevated the clergy to high levels of wealth, power, and status so that bishops became grandees on a par with wealth, the wealthiest senators. Not surprisingly, there was a stampede into the priesthood. In the words of Richard Fletcher, soon Christian offices and especially the higher positions were dominated by sons of the arist- aristocracy. 
some of them gaining bishoprics even before being baptized. Gaining a, yeah. a church position became a matter mainly of influence, <clears throat> commerce, and eventually heredity. Simony, is that how you pronounce it? Or mm-hmm. Simony became the rule, an extensive and expensive traffic in religious offices, including even lowly parish placements. So si- simony was where you, I guess, Selling buy your money. money. Right, exactly. And he goes on to say, of course, many who entered the religious life were neither careerists nor libertines. The stampede into the priesthood was accompanied by a rapid expansion of monasticism, which perhaps surprisingly also was dominated by the privileged. 75% of ascetic medieval saints were sons and daughters of the nobility, including the children of kings. By the middle of the fourth century, there were thousands of monks and nuns, nearly all of them living in organized communities. As time passed, the number of monks and nuns continued to soar. In effect, two parallel churches arose. These can be usefully these can usefully be identified as the Church of Power and the Church of Piety. So you did you did have Christians. You know, yeah. in the church. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was the church of piety. And it turns out, you know, it's those monks and nuns who did the evangelism to the the barbarian Vikings. Yeah. It's yeah, it's just interesting to me to to read that because you get <clears throat> I mean, I imagine I'm like most people and you get sort of bitter about organized Christianity because you see the world creeping in. Whenever it becomes too big of an organization, right, it tends to crumble pretty quick. So there's that side well, of us especially all. Especially if you've got, you've got people with power and no Holy Spirit. Right, right. And and But then it doesn't it make you think of the day when all of that is solved, when Jesus is on his throne in Jerusalem, directly ruling the affairs of this world and that there is no two church dichotomy there's just right. one right that, that's such a fun thought and i know you're trying to rabbit trail me so <clears throat> so it was new year's here recently i went went out to dinner and you know i don't have plans oh i'm gonna evangelize or something like that but what the heck the sommelier comes over to our table you know showing me the wine list in the says yeah it's a you know happy new year oh my gosh i hope he says i hope the next year you know isn't as terrible as the last couple years and i understand that's just table talk right i mean i don't know the guy and so i said yeah it does make you wonder that and then it makes me wonder uh when's it all gonna be set straight in other words when is jesus christ going to return and establish his immediate authority over the earth and the guy goes jesus christ is dead and i said flat out that was his response and i said are you sure about that he said yeah i was raised jewish i'm atheist now and uh, i said well let me give you something to think about and you know take the evening you don't have to respond right now Take your time. Just chew on it. Do you think the universe is eternal? And he said, yes. He he didn't even hesitate. 
Oh, wow. He just he just said yes, and I said, "Well, there's not a single physicist on Earth that agrees with you, so you might want to rethink that. You know, it's their field, and unless there's stuff about you I don't know, which is a ton, but I doubt if you're a full fledged physicist with a terminal degree, and they all know it had a beginning, so you might want to rethink that." <laughs> And then he just left. <laughs> <laughs> After he sold me a bottle of their wine, it was pretty good, actually. But it's funny. But but one well, day he, he's coming back. The king is coming back. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off there. Next thing he does is he talks about the conversion process, and I found it interesting. He said conversion is primarily about bringing one's religious behavior into alignment with that of one's friends and relatives, not about encountering attractive doctrines. But put more formally, people tend to convert to a religious group when their social ties to members outweigh their ties to outsiders who might oppose the conversion. Mm -hmm. This often occurs before a convert knows much about what the group believes. Mm -hmm. I think that's uh, and he goes on to say social networks are the basic mechanism through which conversion takes place. And he goes, this dynamic rules out mass conversions in response to sermons. In fact, social scientists have now discarded notions of mass psychology and collective consciousness. Well, is he saying that Billy Graham can't stand up there or stand down there in the center of the football stadium and tell a give the gospel and people respond, or maybe a guy named Noah, Noah could go to Nineveh, walk across the city. Oh, Jonah, you mean, but yeah. I say no, yeah. Jonah, Jonah and Nineveh, you know. <clears throat> well, I think, so I take from that, what, what you're reading is I, I don't take Stark to be writing from a perspective of faith. Right. So I, you know, I could see, I, I can understand his comments. I mean, well, I know what I, he's saying is true, right? For the most part, and that's how cults, you know, make it. And and we certainly have seen mass psychology and collective consciousness in the last two years about the virus and vaccine. Sure, you know, so. <clears throat> um, sure, but you understand what I'm saying. He's he's not writing from the perspective of faith, so he doesn't have that kind of clarity. Right, but but he has a general sort of accuracy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I, I see where he's coming from, but mm -hmm. I was just thinking of those examples of sure evangelistic crusades. And I think it's not about, I mean, I'm sure some of the people who walked down the front to Billy Graham, you know, the Billy Graham thing that they did it because their, their friend went, but. Sure. So. You know, I tend to think of that. We, we sort of briefly touched on that issue when we were talking about, uh, you know, the founding of America, how there'd be different revivals going mm -hmm. on and so on. And and I w have always wondered about those um, revival or what huge evangelistic events, you know, what's really involved there. I've always just sort of sat down in the place where, you know, I, I see a human being as three things internally, right? You have emotions, you have a will, and you have a mind, and unless all of those, in a sense, come to faith, then you haven't come to faith, right? You right. have to, it's an act of the will, 
but there's raw data involved. So your mind is engaged. And if your mind is engaged properly, your, your emotions follow, but you can't just come to faith emotionally, but not mentally or willfully, right? All, all of those have to be involved. I think the funniest way I've ever heard that even addressed. I remember some sermon by Swindoll one time and he's talking about his driving habits, you know, and he, Oh yeah. I remember right? he just where he says the last thing on my yeah. body. <laughs> yeah. Well, the last part of me to get saved is my right foot. <laughs> <laughs> That's in, you know, another famous uh, line about that used to be spoken with respect to C.S. Lewis. And he was described by someone once as the most converted person they ever met. And that, that was a good way to say it. Well, and see, he, he, he didn't convert, I don't think, because of it was uh, his friends were converting. I think he was converted by logic and, and yeah. you know, apologetics and. Yeah, and there was a divine aspect to it. You know, he just sort oh, yeah. of, it's not like he reasoned it all through. Like God saved him. And, right. you know, all that stuff was preparatory, right? His his friends and so on. But, yeah, yeah it's an interesting topic. Well, he goes on and talks about the, the influence of the organized religion in the church and that, you know, that the church did curb some of the worst excesses of the nobility through excommunication and they provided the intellectual life for the medieval medieval west and um i don't want to go into too much detail there i didn't know if there was anything stood yeah. up now i just want to read the last uh, his conclusion that's what i was going to suggest for far too long far too many historians have had a strong preference for empires not only have they continued to regret the fall of rome but they remember Charlemagne as the man who almost saved Europe and restored civilization, but whose heirs undercut his great achievements by subdividing his empire. That Charlemagne was a bloodthirsty tyrant is ignored or rationalized because, as R.H.C. Davis explained, he was devoted to the cause of Christianity and Roman civilization. Like a true Roman, Charlemagne was devoted to wars of conquest, leading his army somewhere to attack someone in almost every year of his 41-year reign. Wow. And he demonstrated his devotion to Christianity by pronouncing a death sentence on all who resisted becoming Christians. In contrast, most historians have dismissed the Vikings as bloodthirsty enemies of civilization. As for the Normans, most historians have assumed that the sophistication shown by William the Conqueror and his nobles reflected their Viking forebearers' rapid assimilation into Frankish culture. In fact, the Scandinavians were as civilized as the Franks, while William the Conqueror was certainly as able as Charlemagne and considerably more tolerant. There you go. So, I, thought, I thought that was a real interesting chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Clarifies the Crusades, what that was about and what happened. And it, it clarifies the uh, the guys not sinking, not not seeking empirical desires. Right. They, they don't they're not trying to impose an empire. They're they're uh, they're more tolerant mm -hmm. of, of the needs of people.
Right. And, 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 you know, the liberal mindset is kind of very much in favor of, you know, top down, the more government, the better, you know, that that's how you solve problems is with government. And um, you see that down through history. Yeah, you see it today. You know where you can see we, we're not going to do this now or even in, in this endeavor with this book, but eventually maybe we'd get around to this Hampton. We could trace Babylon as a theme throughout the scriptures and then trace Jerusalem and see them compared and contrasted. And it's that'd be an interesting study. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, well, until next time. I will talk to you later. Thank you, Hampton. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Mm